0: listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hello, Faith Church. This is the Palmer family worshiping with you from home. Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, I have chosen in whom my soul delights. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it has been a week, hasn't it? Uh, Today started great. I ripped the elbow out of my shirt, so that's exciting. Um, Two days ago, I got a haircut, and I think we can all agree it's not really working. You were gonna say it, I know. Also, apparently democracy is crumbling. Like, that happened this week, too. Oh, it has been a week. How many of you spent uh, Wednesday and Thursday and Friday just like refreshing different news websites, uh, trying to figure out like, what's the latest, who's saying what about who, and, and what's going on next and all that, anybody? Anybody find it difficult to focus on like, important work the last couple of days? Okay, if it's just me, that explains why the sermon's only 10 minutes long. <laughs> no, I guess there's something, I don't know, psychological about how, like, if you don't know that there's, that if there's anxious stuff out there, things that are happening, and you don't know that somebody's got it under control, that somebody's got it handled, it's really difficult to pull your mind off of all of that and onto other things. You found that to be true right? I think that's why I kept doom scrolling through different news websites, like trying to figure out who's taking charge, who is going to make things happen, who's the person who's going to step up and say, I've got this. this it's taken care of now. We're going we're gonna to put things right. Help is on the way. You know that, that phrase, help is on the way, is so often repeated, it's become a, a trope. Right, a convenient storytelling device in novels or in dramas, uh, TV shows. Right, help is on the way is a way to to heighten the tension, to say to the person in your favorite medical drama, to that person that just collapsed. Like help is on the way means hang in there, it's going to be okay. You just have to hold on until help gets here. And of course, us the viewers are left wondering: Will they hang on? Can they make it? Will they survive? help is on the way. You know it's what the people of Israel, God's chosen people needed to hear and it's what we're looking at in Isaiah 42. They were going through not dissimilar circumstances from us, people who were wearied by political division There were active military assaults from neighboring countries, divisions within their own religious institutions, and forced occupation and exile of some of their own neighbors. God's weary people filled with anxiety at things they cannot control that are happening out there and they just wanna know that someone can take care of it, that help is on the way. What about you? Man, what, about, what about me? If we knew that help was on the way, would that help? As a church, we've been exploring Isaiah's prophecies together from the, uh, the 40s of Isaiah. We started chapter 40. We're skipping ahead now to chapter 42. We've been bouncing from high point to high point, stopping every time we see one of these mountaintops of God's comfort. For weary people, that show us God's heart for weary people. This week, we're stopping on this mountaintop of Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, because it's here, you know, after a valley of despair, which is chapter 41, we chose not to preach that one verse by verse, because we're all familiar with despair right now. We would kind of go through that valley quickly and then get back to the mountaintop of 42, verses 1 through 9. Pausing here because this is where comfort again begins to come in. God says, behold my servant. The servant is coming. The servant with a capital S is coming. Help is on the way. You know what? I'm going to say that phrase, help is on the way, like 30 more times. So you might as well write it down now. Uh, to make sure you get it. That's the key idea or the big idea. The the key thing I want you to remember this morning is that help is on the way. So write that down and turn with me to Isaiah 42 if you haven't already. We're going to climb this passage together, and as we do, we're going to find it divided into two main sections, uh, verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 9. 1 through 4, we read what God is saying about his servant the servant and verses five through nine what he then turns and says to the servant what does god say about the servant what does god say to that servant and and as we go we kind of are going to try and tackle these questions well who is this servant who is he what's he like and why is that comforting why does that bring comfort to israel and then to us So let's jump in. First section, verses 1 through 4, what God is saying about the servant. Start at the top. 42, verse 1, "...behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations." Now, of course, before we even get more than about three words in, we're immediately struck with the fact that God is drawing our attention to this servant, we assume for a reason, the reason's going to come later, but he's drawing our attention to this servant, and we, we can assume, we can infer that because this is the person God is sending, this person is capable of helping. Think back to those medical dramas when someone's on the floor choking or needs CPR or whatever, and you tell them, help is on the way. You, you don't say that if help isn't actually on the way. Or at least you shouldn't. Like, when, when help is coming, the implication there is that the help that is coming can actually help. <laughs> Otherwise, help wouldn't be on the way. So, when God says, behold my servant, immediately we know this person He's directing our attention to, this servant, is able to do what God is calling him to do. Now, we may, that may bring up the question, well, who is this servant? And the passage doesn't tell us, he's not, he's not named, he's just called the servant. Now, servant, as a word, uh, shows up multiple times throughout Isaiah, uh, mostly in the 40s and 50s, and when it shows up in these chapters, it usually refers to the nation of Israel as a whole. Uh, one chapter back, 41 verses 8 and 9, uh, "'But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, I have said to you, you are my servant.'" I have chosen you. So, so normally it applies to the whole nation, but there are, there are passages and, and kind of the poems sort of set off here where like, the servant and the nation are discussed separately. Like the servant does something on behalf of the nation, and it's sort of led most interpreters to think, okay, the servant, at least in some of these contexts, isn't the whole nation of Israel. It must be a smaller group or maybe just one person or what one... Um, One recent Jewish commentator wrote on this passage that uh, this servant is, and now I can't find it in my notes, um, an exemplary leader that will arise from among the people. That's the servant. And these sections where the servant seems to be an individual, an exemplary leader, are often called the servant songs or the servant poems or the servant passages or something like that. Verses 1 through 9 is one of them. So, back to verse 1. Behold my servant, the one whom, God continues, the one whom I uphold, my chosen, so the one I chose, the one in whom my soul delights. A few, uh, let's see, a few sermons ago, Pastor Jeff asked us from chapter 40, if we wrestled with these questions, is God available to save, to rescue his people? Is God able to rescue his people? And from this verse, this passage, the answer is unequivocally, yes. God is 100% behind this guy. Not, this servant is not just the person who he upholds, who he gives power and strength to. It's not just the person he's chosen, but also the one in whom he says, my soul delights. You know as well as I do, you can hire a person for a job, assign them to a task, pick them for your kickball team, and not necessarily delight in them. They may just be the least bad option you could find. Or as Pastor Tom always teases me, when when they were looking for the job I filled, I was the best they could find. (laughs) But this servant... (laughs) This servant isn't just a good compromise or the least bad option. I mean, this is about the strongest way God can say he was 100% behind this guy, totally invested, absolutely on board. Uh, He's the ideal, the Servant, capital S, the one in whom God delights, the one of whom maybe later he would say something like, behold my servant in whom I am well pleased, And he's given him authority. The second half of verse 1, I've put my spirit upon him is a poetic way of saying I've anointed him as king. Actually, not even really all that poetic. It shows up all throughout Jewish scriptures when someone is, when the spirit of God is put on someone, it's when they're, they're anointed for king. So the servant is given a, a kingly authority in order to, the last line, bring forth justice. To bring forth justice justice, to set things right. And not just for Israel, justice to the nations, all of the nations. When this servant comes, the one who has been imbued with or invested with kingly authority, he comes to bring justice, but not in a heavy-handed, forceful, conquering way. Justice is what He does, but kindness is who He is. Look at the next two verses. He will not cry aloud, or lift up His voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break, and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. These verses are ironic in their understatement. Did you notice they don't tell us what the servant is going to do, just what he won't do, or how he won't do what he is called here to do. He's not going to make himself known. He's not going to be out in the street saying, look at me. Everyone follow me. Look, look. Do you see, making his voice loud, he's not the the kind of servant who comes in and finds a bruised reed. So, you know, a good thick reed could be used as a support for a structure or scaffolding or as a stake for a tent. He's not going to come and find one that has been, you know, impacted on the side some way that it's been crushed and it's only good for breaking up and turning into kindling. He'll see that, but he's not going to break it. A faintly burning candle, a candle that is just barely hanging on, the slightest breath would put it out. He's not going to come in with a storm and just blow it out. He's going to come in and take care of it, bring it back to life. This is the kind of servant that God is telling Isaiah is coming and that we'll know him when he shows up. Because he won't be the one saying, look at me. Follow me, going and trying to get the biggest crowds possible and saying, I'm the servant. I'm the one who can make everything right. Follow me. Now, he'll be the one that you, you know it's him. In fact, we'll have to publicize that it's him because his, his, his work is all finding those that are bruised and broken and restoring them. Of course, to bruised read a faintly burning wick, these are poetic ways of talking about the weak and the poor and the oppressed, as one author puts it, we'll know this servant because when he shows up and begins to deal with and minister to those who are bruised and broken, to this servant, it says, no one is useless. To this servant, no one is too far gone. Or another author put it this way when this servant shows up, more will be mended than you know. Because no one is outside of his care. Let's pick up, keep reading, end of verse three. He will faithfully bring forth justice, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Till he has established justice there's the word again the third time till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands the islands the extreme edges of the world are waiting in anticipation for his law verse one had told us its first instance of the word justice that he comes to bring forth justice uh versus the end of three uh, sorry the The end of verse 3 tells us that this is his main goal. This is what he's here for. This is what he's going to faithfully accomplish, bring forth justice. And he won't stop until he's done. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. There's a bit of a play on words here. He will not grow faint is the same word as faintly burning candle. He will not be discouraged, bruised, crushed is the same word as the reed that is bruised or crushed, meaning He's going to face some of the same pressures, the same struggles, the same trials as the poor and the oppressed and the weak are facing in this time, but He won't be broken or crushed by them. Uh, He won't be blown out by them. because, verse 1, God says, I'm upholding this guy, I'm giving strength to him, so he will not succumb to the pressures that he faces until, meaning he never will because he's going to do this first, establish justice in the earth. Not just in Israel, but in the earth. This is the first hint we get in the servant songs in Isaiah that this servant part of his work may have to do with suffering. He may face opposition and oppression and suffering for the sake of those to whom he is bringing justice. But in what God tells us about this servant, we know that he is God's chosen one, the ideal servant, the ideal Israelite who is invested with kingly authority and comes to make the world, put the world back right. Do you know a servant like that? If you knew that a servant like that had things handled, would that help? Because help is on the way. Now, verses 1 through 4, that was the first section of what God was saying about the servant. Now, we shift to verses 5 through 9, what God says to the servant, the commissioning that he gives to his servant, the mission that he gives to his servant. Verse 5 is sort of a preamble to what God is about to say. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And he's about to speak, but you realize before he does, Isaiah is reminding us of who God is. A few chapters back, he brought up God's ultimate creative creating power as a comfort for his people. Saying, "Okay, God has not fulfilled His promise yet, but it's not because He's not able. Look, I mean, you saw how He—you see how He created everything. He is absolutely able to fulfill His promises when He chooses to. Now, that same fact that God is the ultimate creative power that comes up again, but this time as support." As, as a way of saying, this, this is the guy who's upholding the servant. This is the authority of the one who is giving the commission, the mission to the servant. So, verse 6, verse 7, here's what the servant is to do. Thus says God, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. In other words, I have officially commissioned you for this task. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. Now what I love about these two verses is uh, the purpose that comes through clearly in it, the direction. Do you see the verbs, what God is doing, what God will do? I call you, I take you, I keep you, I give you. All of these actions that show that His purpose to establish justice, to bring the world back to how it should be, to make it right again, to set things right, is inextricably heading towards its end goal. He is behind it and purposing it and making it happen. And it all culminates in that last verb, I will give you as a covenant for the people. Saying to the servants, okay, I'm, you know, I'm calling you. I'm going to take you. I will keep you. I will give you as Covenant. Now, what that means is that this servant, this servant who is coming, this capital S servant, will be a covenant mediator, a new covenant mediator between God and His people. Now, I know covenant and mediator, those are big theology words, so give me just a second to explain what I mean. Uh, Covenant, a covenant is basically an agreement, a contract. There's an aspect of it where you sign on the dotted line. Like there are consequences to breaking the agreement. But it's not just a legal document, because there are also stipulations in a covenant uh, that have to do with the mutual love and care and affection of the two parties for one another. It's both law, you know, contract, and love, uh, affection. Closest analogy we have today is a marriage. Right? A marriage is not just all feelings. There's consequences if you break it, and it's also not just all law with no feelings. It's it's both, and therefore stronger and more beautiful. And it's the covenant. It's that kind of arrangement. In fact, marriage is often used to, to describe God's relationship to His people. So, that's the covenant. This servant will also be the covenant mediator. A mediator is the person who stands between two parties in a dispute or two parties who are relating to one another. The mediator can understand both and help them both communicate to each other. But this guy will do more than just stand between and communicate. He's also given as the covenant something about some part of his ministry, what he does, actually brings about the covenant between God and Israel, between God and His people. Now, God has made a series of covenants like this with the nation of Israel over and over and over again. But since the very beginning, He's hinted that He wants this relationship with the whole world that He's created, not just one nation. They were just supposed to be the beginning of it. Here, those hints become explicit. I will give you as a covenant for the people may just mean Israel, but he goes on to say, as a light for the nations, that this covenant has more, it's a broader scope than simply one nation or one people. This servant, who will have to submit to suffering, will do so to establish a covenant between God and His people that will establish justice across the earth. because in that covenant, justice will come. Look at the end of verse 7. The light for the nations will open the eyes that are blind. Now, in the context, it's not referring specifically to giving sight to those who are congenitally blind. It's, it's explained by the, the remaining lines to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness, right? You're in darkness, you're used to the dark, and then you're brought out into the light, and metaphorically you go from blind to seeing. Which, by the way, I should note that in in the ancient Near East context, these were not hardened, dangerous criminals that we're talking about here. Uh, Those were just executed. Um, here, it's referring more to those who are imprisoned or put into a dungeon, literally a hole in the ground, uh, because of a social injustice or because they can't pay back a debt or because they're being oppressed or their land is being taken from them or some such unjust situation like that. This, this servant who is invested with kingly authority will come, suffer on behalf of those to whom and for whom he is making a covenant in order to establish justice and bring out from under oppression those who have been unduly and unjustly persecuted against. To put it more shortly, help is on the way. Help is on the way. And we know this is coming. This help is coming. We know this is going to happen. God backs it up in verses 8 and 9. He said, he's, he's given this charge to the servant in verses 6 and 7, and now he again comes back to his own authority to say, this is going to happen. Look at verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He said, behold, look, see and appreciate and understand the former things have come to pass. That means the things I told you were going to happen before they happened have happened. And new things I now declare before they even spring forth, I'm telling you about them. In, in other words, God is saying, if you're worried about whether or not I can pull this off, remember, I'm in charge. I have told you what can happen before it happens. I've done it before. I'm doing it again. (laughs) Take comfort when I say help is on the way. Which is good to say, help is on the way. I just wish it would come you know what I mean? After this last week, uh, reading this passage and trying to to figure out how to to wring as much comfort out of it as I can, I was like, yes, help is on the way. Would it hurry up and come? See, when when Isaiah is writing, uh, the servant had not yet come. The servant had not yet appeared. They're being told, hang on, you can can hang on, help is on the way, help is coming, the servant is coming. They they didn't know who that help would be. Uh, But in Matthew chapter 12, uh, after Jesus heals a, a couple of people in a row and then tells people, hey, don't go out telling people about all this. That's not the point. Matthew says, all of this was done. To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes this passage. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. It's the way Matthew puts it. So we live in a slightly different context than Isaiah's readers lived. For them, help is coming. For us, help has come. But help is also coming again. which means if we live in this time in between when help has come but has not yet come again, then there's a few things that I think we should keep in mind. A few practices that we should engage in in order to rely on this truth that help has come and that help is coming again, that help is on its way. Uh, First, we need to look very first word, very first command of chapter 42 is behold, which means look. Look and understand. Look with appreciation. And immediately God is calling us to look to the servant, the specific Servant. There are a lot of servants out there, a lot of other messiahs out there who we can go to and rely on and, and sort of put our gaze on in order to feel like, okay, the help I need is coming. Whether it's your favorite politician, your favorite party, your favorite uh, pundit on whatever website... Uh, whether it's your own checking account, your own bank account, your own ability to acquire or get, or maybe it's the stuff you already have, or it's just that thrill you get every time there's an Amazon box at the front door. There are all sorts of different places where we put our, our gaze in, in order to convince ourselves that, that help is coming. But of course, there's only one capital S Servant. There's only one my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen, God says, the one in whom my soul delights. So first, got to look to the servant, look to him, look to Jesus. But that's just the first. The second is while we look, we also wait. We also wait. That's actually hinted at in chapter 42, end of verse 4, the coastlands wait for his law. This has the sense of the, the ends of the earth wait in anticipation for the law of the servant, the justice of the servant to finally be established. We wait. At the end of verse 9, God says some of the things he's telling us about have not even yet begun to spring forth. And so, we wait. When the servant came the first time, Israel didn't recognize him because he didn't come in the sort of militaristic, nation-building, overthrow-the-enemies-with-force way that they kind of thought that he would. And so, when he did come, he came in kindness and meekness to enact and establish justice within them first, before within the rest of the world. Okay, I say all that to say that the first time the servant came, he didn't come the way they expected. The second time he comes may not be necessarily in the way we expect either, or in the way we want, so we wait. We wait, we pray, we hope, we ask God, how long? But we wait. So first we look at the servant, second we wait for the servant, but third we serve. Third is that we serve, and this is key, because the servant, Jesus, has already come, and because we've seen how that servant served when he came, bruised reed he won't break, faint wick he won't, faint candle he won't blow out, uh, and because we are servants of the servant, are you following my logic here? We serve the way the servant would serve were the servant here to serve. Think of it this way. Uh, go back to the medical drama, right? When, when someone's laying on the ground and needs CPR, they're in their seat, you know, and they're choking or whatever, and you call 911 and then you say, help is on the way, what do you do Next. You'll be good. Help's coming. No, you you get in and you try to do what you are capable of doing, what you know how to do that is in keeping or in alignment or in accordance with what the help would do when they came, right? So if someone's choking, you call 911, but you also do the Heimlich because that's what they would do when they came. So we serve as in the same way that the servant who is coming will serve. We serve now as the servant would serve now, were he here. So, we look to the servant, to Jesus. We wait for him to come as he has decided to come. But while we wait, we serve. We serve as he would serve, were he here to serve. And it's spelled out for us what that looks like. We don't cry aloud or lift up our voices or make it heard. Look at me. We don't break those who are bruised and blow out those who are faintly burning. We don't treat one another and the world around us like bruised reeds just looking to be broken into kindling. Or like we measure the, uh, our impact on a room by how many people we can snuff out when we walk in. We don't, we don't come in um, with harsh words and hardness with punitive actions or condescension or dismissiveness because the servant didn't. No one was too far gone for him. No one was beyond repair. So we listen to pain. We sympathize with weakness. We don't shout at others to repent until we have first repented ourselves. We don't condemn others for their sin until we have first discovered the sin within ourselves because we're servants of the servant. So while we wait for help to come, we look to The coming help we look to jesus the servant we wait for jesus the servant we serve like jesus the servant it occurred to me this week that as i was studying this and like i said trying to wring as much comfort out of it as possible it's passages like this are nice you know when when you're when nothing's particularly difficult and life seems more or less going the way you want, and you can generally write, you know, write a check to get out of whatever difficulty comes. Passages like this are nice, but they don't they're not a support that we need. In other words, comfort isn't quite so comforting if you don't need comfort. We are bouncing from mountaintop to mountaintop of God's comfort because we are trying to see His heart for weary people, which I'm now realizing we're not going to see His heart unless we are weary. So I don't know what comfort you need this week, what grief or despair or anxiety or angst you've been carrying uh, for a day or a week or a month or a year. But I do know that without that we would not know the heart of God for weary people. For that at least then I think we can be we can be thankful. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who need help, a people who need to know, not just intellectually, but, but appropriate for our own affections and emotions for our own selves. We need to know that your help has come in Jesus and is coming again. We need to know that when he comes, more will be mended than we can possibly imagine. As we look to our Savior, your servant, our help, draw our hearts to rest in him, we pray. Amen.